Welcome back, friends, philosophers, and fellow authors to this Wild Isle writing cast. I have back with me Nathaniel Cumberledge. How are you doing today, Nate? Excellent, excellent. Yeah, I we're here to... Every... <laughs> Everything's fine with me. We're here today to talk about originality in this episode. I've titled Our Novel. Novels, novel. Uh, we'll probably be venturing beyond just novels and the short stories and other forms of uh, fiction. But really, we're comparing the difference between originality, inspiration, homage, and derivation, particularly disgusting, low, incestuous derivation, uh, as Nathan has um, coined there, at least coined as far as I'm concerned. But before we begin... Uh, if you want to take part in this podcast, uh, if you know me or know of me or know someone who knows me, some way to get in contact with me, either via social media or my website, wildislet.com, you can. We have a number of topics still open to discuss, though they are dropping like flies. Um, also, if you would like to suggest a topic, even if I have no idea who you are, you're perfectly welcome to, and I'll definitely consider it. Uh, what we have left over, uh, we have a conversation on theme, delving into the depths. Uh, we have a conversation left on setting and world building. Uh, that's the author spake upon the face of the waters. We have a conversation on style and objectively or not objectively quality prose. That's narrative voice, potence or pretense. Regression to the mean is a conversation about rules and when they apply and when they don't, when they'll help and when they'll hurt. Uh, art versus escapism. So that's narratives as nourishment or decadence. Uh, it's exactly what it sounds like. Still open is when is the weave always wrong? Discussing how, uh, let's say, literary devices or uh, not even literary, just devices used in anime and manga can hurt the new writer who is not well read but watches way too much anime like i did growing up uh the nature of villainy what makes a villain and why do people choose evil and one more that i've recently added so reader rights versus justified writing when is the author or reader in the wrong uh this is a topic not super close but fairly close to my heart uh i've seen it quite a lot where readers misread something and then accuse the author of bad writing and then the author points to the paragraph where the thing is that the writer or the reader said wasn't there uh you can tell i've had this happen to be before can't you uh all right so those are the topics up for discussion uh if you want to participate get a hold of me again at my website is a good place to do so wildiolit.com slash contact i believe is where my contact form is while you're there check out my novel one smoke broken a weird fantasy story reads a bit like a western lots of uh, psychedelic mushrooms and terrible undead creatures and mushroom men and all kind of other weird things uh, and also if you're an author and you're looking for an editor i do editing particularly through my wild isle style guide where i focus on stylistic choices helping you sharpen your manuscript polishing it making your prose into something beautiful taking in influences both contemporary but particularly uh, older and antiquated and revitalizing them for the modern day um, and nate you said you don't have anything to shell shill is that right Nope. All right. Well, we're we're done shilling for right now. Um, so now we're going to talk about originality. And immediately when I think of originality, I think of the question, uh, two questions, really. Is any, in terms of literature, any work of fiction original? But then that uh, begs the question, what is 
originality. So you can tackle and throw either of those questions or both. Is anything original and what even is originality when we're talking about fiction? I will say that I believe originality is possible. However, like originality in the strictest piece is the sense that people think of it is often it's it's a situation in which the juice is not worth the squeeze situation because the the quote there is nothing new under the sun is probably true in which everything you can imagine has been conveyed in some way except maybe some elements of like quantum physics or whatever which is outside of the scope of most people's fiction writing so uh I think the important thing, my my take is mainly going to be the important thing about originality is to have a breadth of influences and knowledge of tropes so or whatever so that you can, or I know tropes is a bad word, but it's the closest thing I can get to right now, but having a massive like catalog of that stuff you're aware of so that you can combine them in new and innovative ways that people didn't expect before, right? Yeah, so that's like an originality of composition or composite as opposed to originality of essence. Am I understanding that right? Yes, because at a fundamental level, uh, there's just every kind of thing like that, uh, originality of essence, has appeared before for the most part, there might be something that has not that I am unaware of, but I guess that's why I'm unaware of it. If you can think of it, you should put it in a book and then it won't be original for other people. anymore. <laughs> yeah. Actually, as you're saying that, um, I even had this thought there, there very well may be no essence to even the concept of originality of essence. Um, so tell me what you think of this. The very idea that a thing is original is contingent upon the subjectivity of the person experiencing it, right? So uh, originality is in reference to that person. And so you can't actually be um, original with any consistency. In fact, you know, you might be original in one moment, the next moment you're not. And maybe you were entirely trite that you went to a new place or with a new audience who's never seen what you've done before. And then now suddenly you're original until you show it to them and then you're not again. There doesn't really seem to be anything at the bottom of, let's say, pure originality at the level of, let's say, the the conceit in and of itself in regard to fiction. All right. Yeah, this remi- this reminds me of something I talk about with my other friends a lot. The idea of... Uh, I've referred to this as boss baby syndrome, which is named after a film because there is a meme in which this hypothetical being has only ever seen the film boss baby. And upon seeing his second movie, will refer, will say, man, I'm getting a lot of boss baby vibes from this because like he has nothing else to compare it to. The other thing is like he'll see patterns of comparisons of comparison of the only things he knows in the new thing no matter how dissimilar that thing is, right? Yeah, but that's really interesting because of how much people desire originality. Um given that there is nothing if if in fact there is really really nothing quite at the bottom of it. Why do you think everyone 
wants their work so badly uh, to be a vi- uh, uh, to be original, especially because if what we're saying is true, the works that the let's say author who wants to be original likes and perhaps might be inspired by or has enjoyed probably also wouldn't have been original in the in the way that they're they're seeking after. So why are people, you know, constantly you know chasing this? Uh, I don't know what to call it. I believe that uh, I believe that the main reason we chase originality is to to stand out for the most part from the pack, not to not be accused of being trite and tropey and stuff. But uh, the reality is, most of the time, somebody's going to be able to look at your thing and uh, point out how similar you are to another thing. Because at this point, we're also uh, we also reached like peak pop culture saturation like several decades ago. Which is why it doesn't feel like there is anything "quote unquote" original coming out, but there's also no effort, like no like mainstream effort. There are certainly like individual efforts, but there's no mainstream effort to try to innovate on older things, I guess. And that's something I'll get into in a little bit. But uh, I I think mainly original, the desire to be original is to make something that you think is yours, and also to stand out. Because standing out is, of course, going to get more eyes on a thing most of the time. But the reality is, stuff that is, like, hyper-original can often be very weird and very niche. And that can lead you into obscurity. Yeah, where the, the potential audience isn't isn't really there. Um, this reminds me a little bit of, you know, being in high school and trying to, you know, find find my identity man and stand out from the crowd uh and i finally found the word i was looking for it was unicorn like everyone's trying to trying to chase their you know unique special unicorn not realizing that we have let's say perhaps already gathered all of the unicorns and they're now all like in the zoo and then we just keep taking a few of them out of the zoo and presenting them to to everybody uh over and over again and then some people try to i don't know genetically engineer uh a unique unicorn and ends up sometimes just being some freak thing with none of the qualities of the unicorn and no one really wants to look at it Um, yeah uh, a genre particularly guilty of that tends to be like really in-depth well thought out science fiction like somebody can be like really intelligent about a concept and try to present it in a very unique way but it often comes out very difficult to read and very difficult to navigate and difficult to tell a story about. Like, say, somebody trying to make, like, a realistic uh, portrayal of all these different alien species communally living together or something, and, like, it becomes more and more difficult for, like, humans to relate to the experience of you trying to think of how all of these alternate organisms think and act. And like it, that's interesting, but it's very niche. <laughs> yeah, I, um, on Minds.com, um, at Eternus, uh, I usually just refer to him as Captain. Uh, he posts questions every day. It was a couple weeks ago now, maybe even more than a month. He asked a question about writing non-human characters, um, and essentially, I encountered what you just described there. This is delving a little bit into um, character, but it's related to originality. And he pointed, or 
uh, I pointed out in my answer to the question and other people also agreed, said much the same thing, that when you're writing a non-human character, typically you end up making them quite human. Because if you don't, then the reader is very unlikely to be able to sympathize, relate to, or care about that character as they become increasingly non-human. And that kind of relates to our biology, right? Like, why is it that we love like puppies and kittens? Well, they look like human babies, basically. Like, they have similar features. And we don't feel the same way about, like, I don't know, baby cockroaches, you know, uh, because they don't. They 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 have not evolved to appeal to our uh, or been bred if but more evolved because it would be you know you take a baby wolf or a baby lion cub and uh they're still quite cute um to appeal to our our sense of relatability yeah um so that, that is oh continue no uh, i was just going to 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 press on word do you have anything more you want to say on that not this specific topic Okay, so we talked about originality. We, we've we kind of parsed out that originality insofar as it's useful comes from composition, which means that you are, if we're not being original in essence, we're taking things that we are borrowing or stealing, if you want to use that word, though I like to say borrowing. I don't really feel like I own any individual ideas uh, that I have, uh, but we're composing them together to make something that is if not original, perhaps the word I would reach to is relevant to our current audience. And that's what I would say if you're taking inspiration as opposed to originality uh, is that composition. Um, Now, my point of relevance, does that relate to you or does that seem right to you that we're not making something original we're making something relevant to our target audience? That that could be argued. Uh, I think that sometimes the audience uh, doesn't know what they're going to like until they find the thing sometimes. But uh, for the most part, they have to be motivated in some way to look for the thing, right? So, like, as a general thing, uh, this is one of the reasons why we write in genres, right? And I think you've had an episode about why those can be bad or good in certain circumstances. but. But that's also why we do it. It's like uh, somebody sets out, they want some kind of adventure story with swords or spaceships or whatever have you. They feel like doing that day, and they're going to look and find something that's easily categorized as such, right? Yeah, uh, I've actually developed my thinking more on this after having uh, quite a long debate with the captain. And before that, um, and I want to tie that to that proposition I just made with relevance. So... When I say that when we are you know, taking a work that is inspired from numerous other works and composed in a way that's relevant to the reader, what I mean by relevant is that isn't merely that uh, it is something they're looking for, uh, but it is something that whether or not they're looking for it, when they encounter it, it, uh, let's say, has the... Uh, I don't want to use the word intended. It has a function. I like to go to function because it takes away the subjectivity of it on the reader. Um, And relating that to, let's say, the idea of genre. Now, at this point, um, I've I've come to the conclusion that genre actually ought not need or it should not be destroyed, though I do think it should be restrained. I think that um, the loose use of the word has been unhelpful at essentially marketing, which is 
you know, is more than merely the, the means by which the author makes money. It's also how we parse through, particularly in modern day, the endless, endless flood of work that is published and find that which both suits the reader and um, is also of decent quality because you just have to sift and sift and sift. Now, um, not to ramble on too long, but in the case of genre, uh, I, I'm, I've now argued that really if genre is useful as a term, meaning that you don't have to hyper qualify it to, you know, like a whole paragraph just to describe uh, what genre your uh, what your your book falls into, which that is actually the state right now. You know that because if you if you say, well, my genre is science fiction, and that actually doesn't tell the reader damn well anything other than potentially the setting. And maybe the theme, depending on what you mean by genre, you see what I mean? Like it, you just get into this whole, yeah. it, it's it's so vague, it's meaningless to most people. Um, and so I'm arguing that it should be tied back to what Aristotle pointed out, which is the telos, which is the function that it has on the person's, uh, let's say, emotional and biological responses. Now, there is some going to be some play there. Uh, it's not going to affect everything. Isn't going to affect everyone the same way. However, just like with medicine, I think there are, let's say, general biological responses to particular, uh, let's say, either characters and character arcs or particular uh, plot types and particular twists and events that will get a rather consistent response. And then if you combine genre with, like we talked about, I call them structures in our conversation, but I actually think plot types is a more accurate way of talking about it. Um, and so you've got different types of plot types. That could be like an adventure story. That could be a mystery. Uh, you've got different forms of character arc put in different settings combined with the emotional effect, let's say, of those uh, other elements could create something like the relevant, um, let's say, as opposed to original work to tie that all. I know I went on a, a long trip there, uh, but the the argument essentially would be that the combination of those different elements, um, those are your inspirations that you tie together in order to have a particular, uh, let's say, make the work particularly useful and or meaningful and or relevant and or interesting some some that at this point it's getting a little bit gray and vague but to the reader um that was quite a lot i don't know if you have anything to say about all of that uh it does feed into something that i definitely wanted to talk about today which is whenever it comes to genre and influences and such uh i think the average person has way too narrow of a view of what a genre is, to some extent, I guess. Uh, the average person, anyway. Uh, so, like, whenever you say uh, something like fantasy as a genre, it usually conjures a very specific image of something Tolkien-esque, and then everything else branches off of that, right? That's a very common experience, because he... in in the 1970s, he took over the publishing world, more or less, and people just, publishers wanted to continue emulating that success rather than branching out or doing anything else, right? But one thing I definitely 
one uh, one thing I wanted to touch upon is that you, whenever you are writing in anything, any genre or any piece, I believe in breadth of influence. So like taking elements, inspiration, and things from loads of things. And the best way to do this is, of course, is to explore and um, explore things you didn't think you would be into before. That's a that's a big thing. And just finding lots of stuff that other people don't know about. And one thing that I'm going to suggest is if you are familiar with Dungeons and Dragons and you like fantasy, the original Dungeons and Dragons uh, Dungeon Master's Guide from AD&D has in the back a reading list called Appendix N created by Gary Gygax that he said is every book that they had read that inspired the making of the game. In this is a lot of lost, hidden treasures of fantasy and science fiction that if you have the time to look through, you can just pick any five books from that list that you have never heard of, and you will already have a lot of strange influences that are lost and atypical to the modern reader of genre fiction today. And uh, if you... And one suggestion I will make, if you don't think you have time to read this massive list and find the ge the hidden gems, is uh, there's a book by Jeffro Johnson uh, on Amazon about this topic uh, called Appendix N, The Literary Roots of Dungeons & Dragons, or some such. I don't know the exact undertitle, but you can look for it just by typing in Appendix N. Uh, and he goes through each one point by point. Mostly he talks about it as its influence on the game itself, but you can look at it, see, say, oh, that's a neat looking story, and then go ahead and read it. Sort of thing. Just to get a preview of what they're like, because the, the list itself in the original book doesn't much give you like a synopsis of the writer's work or anything. But that's definitely something that I would suggest to people who like to write fantasy or science fiction. Like, expand your influences, read old weird lists of books. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've started to do that with other other books. I didn't do it with Dungeons and Dragons, but I'll I'll read something and then learn. Oh, this person was inspired by these three people, and then you read each of those, and then you learn. Oh, they were you know inspired by these three people. So, um, my introduction to Jordan Peterson brought me into Yoon, which made me have to go read Nietzsche. And then after reading it in Nietzsche, it's like, well, you know, fuck. Now I have to go read Goethe, and I should probably read Schopenhauer. Um, and so it you know. If you want to, let's say, be able to, I don't want to say write at the level of the people you're reading, though, you know, I'll, I will say that if you hope to strive to the quality and inspiration, if not originality of the people that you yourself enjoy, you should probably try to at least be as broadly and deeply read as they were, plus more. Right, because you, unless you just want to try and be a copy of them, uh, that that brings into the conversation uh, a question about genre. So, um, in in genre, in relation to, or let's say, I want to call it inspiration for now. Um, and you mentioned breadth being really important, and I actually think what you're touching on there is what I would argue the uh misconception of 
genre. So like uh, one of the things I picked up in my conversation with uh, Captain, uh, for those of you who are familiar with him, um, was that there is a thing that I ended up calling uh, spirit that kind of takes a placeholder of what most people think of when they think of genre. And most of the time what people are thinking of is a specific combination of other literary elements that form a a kind of narrative that has a uh, an identifiable quality. Now you mentioned Tolkien, right? So Tolkien has definitely influenced um, lots of high fantasy, and to the point where you can look at. I would argue, I don't, I can't say it's most because I don't, I'm not that well read, and there's so much coming out, but. Um, you can see a Tolkien-inspired work and notice what it is with like the snap of your fingers. Like the setting will tell you, uh, the plot type will tell you almost immediately because it'll be this, you know, epic, grand, sweeping um, kind of adventure. Um, it will have very, let's say, archetypal characters. Um, it will, let's say... Uh, what, what would I, if I if I bring the genre back telos what it does to the reader it has a kind of combination of uh, let's say I I need a, a better word for it because I I take the idea of comedy just in its most general form and it's like a kind of uh, positive elation of emotions uh, potentially uh, some emotions related to the sublime so that's that feel of grandeur and wonder and simultaneous awe and fear uh, at the the grandness of the narrative combined with the kind of thriller excitement uh, that might come from like a, a larger battle set piece something like that um, now I'm, I'm actually I'll admit this on air uh, I've actually never read any of Tolkien's works. I've never seen any. No, that's not true. I've seen the first of the three-part Hobbit films, but I've never seen the Lord of the Ring films. Um, because of this originality problem, and, and we could probably go somewhere interesting off of this. So when I was in middle school, I started playing uh, the Elder Scrolls games. And that has a lot of, you know, modern high fantasy Tolkien-esque elements to it, but it does twist them in enough interesting ways that when I came to other works of fantasy in comparison to something as not terribly original and not terribly inspired as the Elder Scrolls Three Morrowind, the others felt generic by comparison, including Tolkien's work itself, uh, which is the arguably most of the source material. So um, you know, what, what do you think is is going on on there or have you seen something similar do you have uh, experiences like that i will say in regards to elder scrolls elder scrolls is very Tol tolkien-esque but it also borrows heavily from a tabletop role-playing game called runequest if you want to delve into the deep lore that is runequest uh runequest was a uh obscure setting created originally for a tabletop war game by a guy who was trying to date uh, Wiccan girls. But uh, he ended up creating a very rich and complicated uh, fantasy world where magic is super common and there's just a whole breadth of weird atypical life forms. And it's, But it was a heavy influence on the development of Elder Scrolls' lore going forward after a certain point. 
and you can kind of see that heavily in both Daggerfall and Morrowind more so than the later later games. But uh, I wanted to add in there. Um, so like everything, no matter how original you think it is, that's what a part of the point I wanted to make is that uh, ev almost everything draws from something. Uh, so like uh, so uh, Elder Scrolls drew off drew from Tolkien and RuneQuest. Uh, Tolkien drew from uh, ancient mythology and specifically like his Anglo-Saxon research. Uh, RuneQuest drew heavily from mythology from atypical sources such as uh, the Vedic stuff and uh, Native American stuff. Yeah, I know with Tolkien, I had opened up a copy of the Icelandic Edas. I think it was Icelandic Edas, as opposed to just general, like the Nordic uh, mythology. And the names of the dwarves uh, out of The Hobbit are listed. They might even be in the same damn order that he presents them in. <laughs> like, literally lifted from one to the other. Like, I, cause I remember I read their name Oak and Shield. I was like, where the fuck have I heard that before? And then I looked and I double checked and the like, motherfucker, you stole that. <laughs> um, which I mean, to be fair, uh, stealing might not be the right word. The, the context is entirely different. Even if they are the same, arguably the same characters plot from one universe into another. That brings about a question that I think is going to get into this uh, incestuous derivation question is uh, when is, you would say, taking inspiration, when is it done well or why is it done well or how is it done well versus how is it done badly? Because I kind of touched on that with Tolkien where a lot of people taking inspiration from Tolkien's work, uh, they, it, it, for me at least, it has almost always falls flat. Is that due to that lack of breadth problem that you pointed that out before? Like yeah, that is absolutely a lack of breadth problem. So this, that's one of the reasons why I uh, sh why I shill Appendix N so much is uh, the, to expand the breadth of fantasy fiction is one of the goals I have in life. So uh <laughs> The problem a lot of people have, especially these days, is not only are they not as in like they're not inspired by a breadth of fantasy fiction. It's an ever trickling, smaller amount all the time. So it's a, like a filter where the stuff that gets popular continues to be popular, and then stuff that is momentarily popular falls by the wayside until you get to the point where. So like you want to talk about uh, most people's inspirations don't come from literature, also. They come from secondary sources. So let's say that Tolkien and a handful of other things inspired, say, like I was saying, Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons inspires most video games that are fantasy oriented, and those video games are what most young people play and explore. And in turn, most of their stuff is going to be influenced by an ever shrinking uh, category of influences. When the goal should be to expand your breadth of influences as wide as possible take from sources that not a lot of people know about as a basis for like how you can expand and change a thing. And uh, that's why you see uh, uh, when it, I know you were going to talk probably more about this in your weeb episode, but why you see a lot of people who take heavy influences from anime and isekai that take a lot of influences from Western video games <laughs> and oh, uh, yeah. MMORPGs. And uh, 
it's like the, when whenever I coined this term incestuous, uh, well, you added something to it. I originally used a different word, but what was your word for it? Uh, derivation, I believe. Derivation, yes. Inc- incestuous derivation, where uh, you just have the same ideas rubbing up against each other in very similar ways to create similar works endlessly onto infinity because people forgot about and don't really branch off into the things that were left by the wayside and like these genres both science fiction and fantasy but of course i emphasize fantasy because there's just a very big demand for it in mainstream popular culture even though i like all kind of stuff but like people people tend to like sword and sorcery faffery that's just the reality that i've accepted as somebody who likes to make things uh, <laughs> so uh people will just keep making things with the same general ideas but these genres used to be massive uh and full of breath like there is a huge amount of difference between lord of the rings conan the barbarian and something like clark ashton smith's zothica right the these were like things that were popular and on the shelf around the same time but so massively different in theme influence and like the the things they had in common were they both had a, a dudes with swords in them <laughs> going on adventures yeah and that again relates to i think of um, part of the problem that comes with what what people are thinking of in terms of um let's say I don't want to just keep harping on genre, right? But if you think, okay, the fantasy genre needs these all like a, a series of elements to be the same, then you're only going to derive your inspirations from works that share only those specific elements all in common. And if you do that, that's naturally going to shrink the breadth of your work. Like you're not going to do uh, maybe something that I did where uh, for, let's say for my one smoke series, um, uh, reading through the adventures of Huckleberry Finn and the adventures of Tom Sawyer um, later in in life, because unfortunately I didn't read it when I was a kid, but reading through those definitely influenced uh, my telling of the story um, The from Cormac McCarthy, Blood Meridian. Uh, also, like that had a huge, huge, huge influence. Uh, thank you, Nathan, for that one. Uh, I'm pretty sure you're the one who told me to read it, right? Yes, more the more people who read Blood Meridian, just the better, I think. Uh, even though it is hard to read due to both the writing style and the like, the sheer brutality of the story, I think that like, um, the com- it's very comparable to like the other things people like to write, and so, like the ideas in it are very transplantable. Like it, the the story doesn't didn't have to happen in the old west because it is a timeless story about like man's inhumanity to man. And I think that almost everybody who writes stuff in those, in a setting where that could apply should definitely read that book. Yes, I, I am in, a, in agreement though. I did take heavily from the, like how much I enjoyed the brutal Western setting. Um, and to show my weebery, uh, I also took from things like Trigun, uh, which uh, really influenced me as a kid. And then combine that with, let's say, any little tidbits of folklore that I could pick up 
uh, mostly because of what I call, uh, well, it's not it's not just their fault. I, I wanted to bring this up earlier: the poisoning by Wizards of the Coast. Um, I, you mentioned D and D being a huge influence, and I think D and D became, I would argue, became more and more generic. Um, yeah. As Wizards took over, and I could think of like, okay, well, we've got. Uh, Wizards, and that reminds me of like Blizzard, and that reminds me of a cartoony version of Tolkien, and then all the derivation that comes comes. Yeah. Do you want to say anything? You know, do yeah, yeah. There is or... a yes. I hate uh, Wizards of the Coast, and its consequences have been a disaster for the fantasy gaming hobby. But uh, yes, absolutely. So uh, the original, like I was saying, the the original creators of the game or TSR, which was a smaller company run by Gary Gygax, Dave Arneson company, and they they had that breadth of influence that I was talking about. They read a lot. They had a deep interest in history, because fiction, mythology, and all that, and they just combined everything they liked into a thing and tried to sell it as a cohesive product. It was designed to just be a simulator of things they liked, from like medieval warfare uh fantasy adventure stories and how all these bells and whistles over time it thanks to uh tracy hickman and Dragonlance, it just be over time became a uh, tolkien pastiche simulator and like it went it started going downhill before wizards of the coast took over but by the time wizards of the coast took over they doubled down on all the things that were going wrong in the 90s <laughs> so yeah, yeah that- uh Definitely, definitely falls into the incestuous der- derivation problem. I see a lot of that problem even now with other um, what were coming off of the height of, uh, let's say, Wizards of the Coast D and D level um, generic fantasy with two. They've got some similarities to them. Um, so I've got A Song of Ice and Fire and The Witcher. Uh, now, these are, you'll notice my, my theme is this is all within uh, like fantasy settings. So if you've got, uh, let's say, science fiction or other forms of setting where you're more familiar, you know, please, please throw those in. But for both of those, I know because of the third Witcher game, The Witcher went from being already kind of popular to an explosion of popularity. It even got, I think, a Netflix series. And then obviously Game of Thrones took A Song of Ice and Fire and and blew it up to uh, monumentous proportions. Now, I actually, uh, I, I, I don't, I never played any of the Witcher games. I haven't read the novels. I watched a bit of the TV series, but that looked like it was botched in terms of the direction. I don't know about the actual writing. Um, I would not say that the show. Well, the the I would not say the show is an accurate representation of the better parts of that series. So I, yeah, I I'm not a fan of it. <laughs> yeah, I I got the impression it wasn't doing the source material justice. There were just things that I it's like that were problems because it looked like bad production but um but in terms of like a song of ice and fire or a game of thrones like i do really like that series um i did when i encountered it feel that it um it had a very firm grounded almost historical feeling low fantasy setting with the uh to the point where when the the, the higher magic did appear um, I got really excited about it. I remember um, 
the first time. I think it was Beric Dondarrion and his duel with the Hound in the books. The first time he lights his sword on fire. Um, that seems like a very small bit of magic, right? If you really think about it in the grand scheme of things. But uh, I was like pretty shaken by that. Like it took me took me back because that just didn't happen in the series where like he cut his hand, his sword caught on fire. Oh shit. Like now, you know, the gloves are off. I don't know what's going to happen next because, you know, real magic has entered the world. It was a similar feeling when I, uh, the first time I read the shadows over Innsmouth and the first huge chunk of the book is really, really dry. You've got, uh, the protagonist, you know, walking around town, just looking at the architecture. Uh, and then when he's back in his hotel and all of a sudden, uh, in his hotel room, someone's trying to get in and he's like completely unarmed and has to escape. Then all of a sudden, like your heart starts to race. Um, it was that level of change of emotion. But as much as I liked the the low fantasy setting and, you know, the, the dearth of magic and the dark and gritty, you know, grittiness, the, uh, what we could argue real is realism of the characters and the politics involved. Uh, Song of Ice and Fire definitely um, sparked. It, it even affected me with my first novel, um, a an attempt at trying to make a world as richly and exactly detailed as George R. R. Martin did in a way that I know hurt my first uh, shame flop of a book, which I will not name here you can find it it's not hard to find um but it don't hurt me and it hurt other people's writing that i've read as well particularly uh i felt like it gave people license to just be uh let's say uselessly brutal and salacious when it when it didn't enhance the scene or didn't enhance the writing and i would say the same something similar with the witcher now i can't say as much but I have seen works that, despite not reading The Witcher, I've read uh, and said, oh, this person much like The Witcher, <laughs> because like <laughs> this is definitely uh, like any, any of the protagonists, they carry two swords. Oh, OK. Uh, and they have like this kind of low key magic and um, they they're kind of the, uh, you know, kind of gruff. Voice, oh, it's fantasy Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Fantasy. At that point, yeah. you know, if I can tell, that's a problem. I kind of ranted on for a while there, but um, I think that's a, a pretty good example of this uh, incestuous derivation where it's very clear there's been one major influence and then yeah. no other influences, um, as I like to use the term, Frankenstein together into the works. And to go back to the point of originality, The Witcher is, of course, an, a pastiche and uh, influence of a combination of Elric of Melnibide, which is a more obscure sword and sorcery hero from the 1970s, who inspired a lot of stuff later on, including Warhammer fantasy, which uh, Michael Moorcock invented chaos and uh, Games Workshop stole it from him. Well, not invented chaos, but invented that idea of chaos as a universal force sort of thing. Uh you think of what, and including like the symbol he drew on a napkin at a bar one time. The that's the chaos symbol he drew. That uh, also, of course, Tolkien and heavily with the different races and their relations was uh, a heavy influence on uh, the Witcher and so, uh, Robert E. Howard's Solomon Kane, 
which is a uh, historical fiction series about a uh, Puritan adventuring monster hunter, which is also really good. Uh, albeit, uh, if you're averse to reading old books with problematic content for the era, like because of the era they are written in, maybe skip Solomon Kane, but you shouldn't let that impede your enjoyment of, a, of old literature. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> it should enhance your enjoyment. Like, if I read Lovecraft, when he's... I enjoy his blatant racism. Uh, there's something, uh, there's something like charming and quaint about it. The same thing with um, Robert E. Howard. I have the coat or the Solomon Kane stories. I have not been able to read them. I've been reading a bunch of indie authors lately and philosophy before that. But uh, I've read through all the Conan stories, and uh, you know when Conan says something like, uh, "I'm not some dog to leave a man of my own race to these." Uh, I can't remember what he calls them. There's some like dark tribal jungle people. Um, or maybe they were picked. Either way, he doesn't count the picks as white men. Uh, and it's really funny because <laughs> it's, it's, it's so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Anachronistic to the time in which Conan would ostensibly exist in to even think of the white man, uh, like as a singular race that it, it's, it's just, it's, it's funny. You can, you get a if very you, uh, if you know about Robert E. Howard, that was kind of part of the joke, though, right? Robert E. Howard was very interested in his uh, ethnicity, and he traces his ethnicity back to Pictish Celts. So the idea of making his like ancestors the savage, like monster race, quote unquote, was funny to him. Because uh, a theme of the work is uh, a theme of his body of work entirely, not just Conan, but it's most accentuated in Conan, is that there is a cycle of civilizations in which sometimes you're on the top of the food chain, sometimes you're the barbarian that's considered subhuman by the dominant culture, and so so on and so forth. It's just, you know. <laughs> yeah, all a matter of circumstances. Of yeah, all a matter of circumstances. All right, so um, we, we were just talking about, um, we went through the Song of Ice and Fire, ranted on about that, talked about the, the Witcher, and you're, you're talking about some of the influences of that. Um, mm-hmm. Let's say that we ventured from there into uh, a few works, including Solomon Cain, the, the, the Puritan uh, monster hunter, which I have read some of um, Robert E. Howard's uh, little bits of poetry before some of his stories uh, in there, just like perusing through. And they're very good, actually. I, I was I was surprised. Um, so, you know, now we talked about a lot of works that were successful in their own right, right? Like I didn't come and say like The Witcher is bad or A Song of Ice and Fire itself is bad. I didn't say Tolkien's work itself was bad. Um, it's the, the works that are incestuous, incestuously derivated from them. Uh, now we haven't really talked exactly about the process of, uh, or the mechanics of being inspired by a, what's a sufficient breadth of work and how that might go into, um, making something again, if not original, that is at least inspired and relevant to the reader uh, and pays proper homage to the multitude of sources. We can get into the homage bit uh, a little bit later, but um, yeah, what does it look like specifically like in the details when a work is 
properly inspired in your experience? That's a good question. I mean, uh, if I'm reading something more recent and I can point to it being like very blatantly just one or like influenced by one or two things, I would say that that's a negative. But at the same time, like it could, I think that if something is sufficiently influenced by enough things, it'll just on its own feel fresh. And I won't have the need to point out how I've seen every trope in a different thing because like, that's just like natural instinct of like, uh, like everything is going to be relatable to something else. But if they, if I, if I point to it and see that, Oh, this has been, this, this is influenced by enough things. It just, I turn that part of my brain off pretty easily, I guess. Yeah, I think it's in the same way that in life, yeah, you've seen iterations of everything that you experience all the time, but there's so many that your 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 brain does not process them as the same thing, right? You got to think like you see the same spectrum of color and the same general shapes, right? Um, now with slight deviations, but you see them everywhere all the time. Um, you know, if you're looking at roads, like roads are like the same, but you're not sitting there thinking that like, oh, here's another road, just like this other road. You just don't <laughs> even think about it at all. It's like, yeah. It is a one, road. One comparison I have made before in a conversation with somebody else is, you know those, uh, how the the Japanese have like genres of women or fantasy girlfriends or whether the, the, what is it, sundere, yandere stuff, that generally doesn't like exist perfectly formed in reality right because like you can see this person and notice that y you encounter some woman in the real world and it's like oh she's a comp she's a composite of all these different elements so it's impossible that the whole time she is representative of this japanese archetype or whatever of uh fantasy girlfriend or whatever <laughs> So, like, in real life, people are composite of influences. Therefore, your work should be composite of influences. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, I'm going to go through some of the influences that um, led into uh, the novel I've mentioned before, uh, Wand Smoke. Uh, that's the series name. The first novel is Broken, but I keep the Wand Smoke because I think it's... Uh, it's a catchier title and just put a colon and then whatever the book title is. So anyway, in that book, uh, one of the things that started it, there's two two main influences. One is from the third Harry Potter book, funnily enough. Um, so in the third book at the beginning, I believe it's been probably more than a decade since I've read it. Um, Sirius Black, there's, there's a news report about him. And the, it's a muggle news report, and they can't say that he's got a magic wand. And so they say he's a dangerous, um, you know, escaped felon with a gun. And this is British newscast, so, like, you know that they're pissing themselves when they hear that, oh, no, the bad guy's got a gun. <laughs> uh, but the idea, something occurred to me when I read that years and years and years and years ago. And it was like, you know, a gun, like would be really effective even against these wizards with their wands. Like how long does it take you to say Avada Kedavra and kill someone? And you have to be like a high level evil wizard to have the, the evil desire to actually pull it off. Um, versus the gun is way faster <laughs> than Avada <laughs> Kedavra <laughs> and probably more effective. 
you're more likely to hit your target. The bullet travels pretty quick. Um, and I combined that idea with something I had heard many years later um, from the from the lips of Matt Easton of Scala Gladiatoria. Uh, he is a uh, HEMA instructor and a YouTuber. And I've been watching his content for years. And he had read an account um, that he then summarized about uh, when revolvers were new. And he described the people of the time who weren't super familiar with them, had the impression that revolvers were like death wands, right? They had this idea because, they, you know, early revolvers, they weren't as accurate. They um, misfired quite a lot more often. You were probably shooting with your left hand because you were an officer if you owned one of these things and had a saber in your right hand. Um, and when you think about all of that, like they weren't thinking that, you know, you're going to miss your target, your shot might not go off, et cetera, et cetera. It might not kill the person uh, if you don't hit them. But people had this idea. It was like point, click, dead, <laughs> right? Like, aha, uh -huh, dead, 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 dead. And I combined the idea of like, okay, a magic wand um, that's actually not a magic wand, but it's a gun. Um, and that's where I got the idea to have a fantasy story that had uh, essentially primitive firearms in it, uh, but that were referred to as magic wands. And they would be death wands because it would, the impression from people is like, I point, click, you're dead, right? Um, mm -hmm. And then from that, I started to take other inspirations. So um, that was probably part of the start of it. Um, there was a Magic the Gathering card. Here's Wizards of the Coast, right? I think it was called... Um, hissing miasma and uh just the name miasma and the purple mist on the card made me take that feature okay i'm going to put that in the setting the idea that there's huge swathes of the land covered in this poisonous acidic mist um and then my question is like well what's in the mist right um and i thought of a city and then i looked up in the mythology about the idea of the king under the mountain that's kind of like um Tolkien took the same idea, by the way, with the Dwarf King, like digging too deeply under the mountain. One iteration of that, uh, the stories um, features uh, King Ugir, who is also um, Ugir the Dane, who I believe was mythologically part of, or legendarily, I don't know how proper it is, part of Charlemagne's, uh, let's say, not court, but one of his knights or something. Um, the Pelham's Charlemagne. Yeah. Um, and so I started taking all these little elements uh, and stitching them together until eventually I had this whole thing. Like uh, Conti was originally, so Conti's name comes from um, Fully Cooley, actually. Uh, so Conti, like the robot. But the reason I, I picked Conti uh, as his name is there's uh, one of the episodes, the other characters, Mamimi, is convinced that this robot is a character from her video game. Uh, who is Lord of the Black Flame, who basically convinces some arsonist to go and burn down Ensville, the city of devils. Um, and so I took her misinterpretation and thought, okay, well, what if I made a fantasy character like this? And I actually had a D&D &D character. Who was that? Who's Conti, uh, Lord of the Black Flame, who was a troglodyte. And then I thought, what if I just, instead of having it be like a D&D &D troglodyte where everything has to be a fucking beast race, it was just literally like a troglodyte, like in Lovecraft, one of his early, one of his first two stories, I can't remember if it's his first or second story that um, was published, 
uh, is like some guy goes into a cave and ends up murdering this like albino who'd been living in the cave for forever. Um, and so I took that. It, and I, I'm not going to keep going on and on and on and on, but I could. Um, yeah. And that's, you see, like, there's, the idea. <laughs> yeah, there's no right. end. And you might say, well, that doesn't sound very original, Marquise. Did you have, did you come up with like anything on your own? And I would probably say hardly anything to be, to be perfectly honest. But I have not, most of the inspired ideas go entirely unnoticed by my readers. There's a, they might catch a couple and they have caught a couple. Um, but probably less than one percent of the the inspirations get picked out by a reader. Uh, do you do do you have like a similar experience and things that you've written where you could start doing that? Like just oh, absolutely. Off? And one thing that you do that is good is don't just take from things that you, of like you were saying earlier the genre or the genre or box you're trying to write in. Feel free to just take things from everywhere. And the more you do that, the more wide your pool the more novel your thing is going to see, the no more novel your novel or whatever is going to seem to people who like say almost only read a handful of types of things or even just like it, it's it. Or even if they read a lot, it's like, it's, there's no way that everybody, somebody is going to have all the influences you do. If you're well-read and just explore the world around you. It doesn't even have to just be fiction. It's just take inspiration from real life. Uh, live an exciting life. That's another thing. Uh, go out, exercise, fight people. Not fight people in the streets, but learn how to fight and learn how to describe the experience of like fighting in a gym or something. And let that influence how you do action or whatever. There's a million different ways that you can expand your voice and your visions and all that good stuff. Yeah. That's, that's great. So I want I, I, I want to hear you. I'm go glad through. you were able to illustrate that. Well, I want you to do it too. Like if you want to, um, I, I would be I'd be you know very glad to to hear you break down even if it's just a few inspirations, three or four that went into a story that you've written or a setting. I know you you do a lot of um, writing for tabletops. Yeah, I do a lot of tabletop. So, like, the core influences that I generally pull from are, of course, uh, the Weird Tales trio, uh, as far as fiction. I, I like the works of H.P. Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard, and Clark Aston Smith as, like, my foundational guys that I like to, like, pull from. Uh, but they, of course, in turn, I like to be influenced by the things that influence them. Uh, I like ancient history with particular attention to the Bronze Age and early Iron Age, because these time periods were essentially different worlds. Uh, it's, it's fascinating to view how like they handled religion, how they viewed the world. Uh, ancient peoples walked through the world with a sense of magic to it that was lost as we secularized in ways that even people in the 1400s probably couldn't have related to the people of like 500 BC. So, like, uh, they, one thing, you can look at things like the job of Augur, right? Or a person who, who uh, could, like, predicted the future based on the flights of birds. Like, who comes up with a job title like that? Somebody who saw significance in everything. So, like, people, like, have always been pattern-recognizing creatures. And so, could just see things in the world 
and thought that they all had a purpose because of our cause and effect mindset. But sometimes they just like they, they were also self-centered in the sense that they like all of this, like all of what I'm perceiving must be a message to me in some way from the gods. And I just don't understand them. And it's my job to piece together these disparate things to understand the world. And so that's also an influence, just the way that people, like, lived in a, st a state of perpetual, which, what we would call religious delirium, I guess? Or religious intoxication. And I think that's fascinating. So, uh, I'm also inspired by philosophy and uh, political writers of certain time periods. Obviously, we both have a interest in Nietzsche. Um... I also like the works of Oswald Spengler, particularly uh, both Decline of the West and Men in Technics, to analyze how uh, civilizations develop and decline. I find that topic very interesting. Uh, this was a topic that I explored before delving into the works of Ari e. Howard, or Robert Howard, who uh, also like wrote mainly like a, bi a big theme of his is Rise and Decline of Civilization. Um, let me think of what else off the top of my head. Uh, I'm fascinated by uh, historical accounts of uh, people in uh, wars. I very much like military history, especially first-hand accounts are very interesting to me, both modern and ancient. Uh, stuff like Xenophon's Anabesis, I think is how it's pronounced, which is an insanely interesting story about a Greek mercenary who goes to fight for one of the Persian prince, prince, princes during a war of secession, and uh, they lose, so they have to find their own way home with no support and no pay. <laughs> oh, wait, it's is just... this a story that um, is the basis for the novel and eventual movie, The Warriors? I think so, yes. Sure. Yeah, because that, oh my god, like, you want to talk about taking inspiration and then making it something that was, like, Oh man, that novel the the novel is is pretty brutal. I actually prefer the film uh, because it's a little bit more upbeat. In the same way, I kind of prefer the kick-ass films to the kick-ass comic books, even though I enjoyed both. But yeah, if you want to see an example of like, okay, let's take this Greek narrative and then okay, let's now make it gangs in New York City, but let's not make let's make it particularly like 1950s, you know, teenage fighting gangs, and let's put them all in fucking costumes. Right, like yeah, yeah. That's 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 definitely an illustration. Just like you can find inspiration from anywhere for anything. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah. I could go on. Also, I've got so much stuff that I just like and heavily influences the direction of things I want to create. I guess it's like, uh, and the more I discover things that are new from differing sources, the more interested i get in exploring that so like i talk a lot about how the D, D reading list is really good and now i'm starting to also look into the traveler reading list which is uh was one of the earliest science fiction role-playing games which also has a huge breadth of weird like space adventure stuff and uh one one in particular that i'm looking into now is called i think it's called flandry which is like uh, the dude took James Bond and reimagined James Bond as working for a space empire. So if you if you're one of those people that doesn't like that Disney Star Wars never does anything with like imperial characters besides make them like cartoon evil cartoon characters, look into Flandry. 
I uh I think that's what it's called. But yeah. Landry. So the the one thing we haven't touched on uh, yet is uh, the idea of paying homage to your inspirations. Do you ever make like the direct reference or directly tie it in? Um, an example of which I'm going to use from the Warriors. So uh, I think both in the movie and in the novel, um, one of the characters has a comic book that is uh, a comic of the um, Xenophons. I can't remember the name of it. You said it before. On a basis, I think. I yeah, don't, I don't basis, know if I'm pronouncing right. it right. I'm not a Greek yeah. student, so. <laughs> but that one of the characters has a comic of that with him um, through the story. And uh, that was a way of paying homage to say, this is the same story. In fact, with the movie, I'm pretty sure there's a narrator who announces, like, this story is this other story, uh, but with these gangs of uh, in, in New York. Um, so do you ever, you know, pay homage in your own works or if not, or if you can't think of a quick example, are there any other like homages that you feel are effective or are particularly ineffective that you want to forewarn against? I think that, um, homage and such is actually really important, uh, because, uh, I subscribe to the idea of, I don't know if you've heard this concept before, but you probably have literature as conversation. So, like, the bodies, the, like, all fiction or, like, all literature in general is one long conversation with itself or each other, and uh, we're all developing towards different goals, obviously. But, like, whenever you talk about homage and influence and stuff, like, we influence each other so much just as if we're bouncing off each other in one long conversation with this genealogy of ideas and... I think not and whenever I talk about influence being the key to creativity and like there isn't really true originality or whatever all that stuff it's it's not it's not only acceptable to have influences and stuff and but it should be mandatory that you like acknowledge where you came from to some extent so I think, like, maybe not super blatant references, but one, one example of this, say, in Game of Thrones, which you reference, like, I have not watched Game of Thrones, but I am aware of this, uh, there is a scene in which one character is, like, asking people to name his sword or whatever, or name, name some kind of sword that was forged for him. And one of the characters says Stormbringer, which is a reference to the fact that George R.R. R. Martin was heavily influenced by Michael Moorcock's Elric of Melnimidae, in which his sword is a magic sword called Stormbringer. So, like, I, every... I did not know that. <laughs> yes. So uh, that's just one example of how, like, you can do that. Ta- you can inf- you can pay homage to stuff very tastefully. Like, it's not like you have to blatantly be like call out something super recognizable. But like, most people aren't going to notice that. That probably went th- beyond, went over like ninety percent of people's heads. But somebody showed me that scene after I had uh, was talking to them about that book series, and they're like, "Oh, so like, wait, the, I've heard that before. It's from this scene." I'm like, "Yeah, that's a reference to that." And then I look into it, and surely enough, George R. R. Martin was a fan of uh, Michael Moorcock. Yeah, so I, like, I've tried to implement. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Nate. Uh, so yeah, it's like it's not something like. People feel like they, uh, some people are ashamed of the fact that they think they take so much influence from other things, but the reality is everybody does. Every, even the most successful and creative people that you make things you love pulled stuff from other people, 
and even acknowledge as much in their own stuff sometimes. <laughs> and I think that's good to do, actually. Yeah, tell me if you think this is a, a valid example, and we'll wrap things up. So in one of my uh, pieces that will be coming out in the next few months, if all things go well, my uh, my next manuscript is almost done being proofed. So now I just need to get cover art and then promote and release. One of the stories that I'm now titled The King, it's there's like an inner city um degenerate you know fighting gangster so here's some here's some uh influences from the mouse utopia experiment plus the warriors uh plus uh the adventures of huckleberry finn so somewhere near the beginning of the adventures of huckleberry finn uh finn says something like but i don't uh this is about moses he's like uh but then i you know I can't remember what he says. He basically discards everything that he started learning about Moses because he learned Moses is dead. He said, I don't put no stock in dead people. Um, and essentially, I, I took that same notion and uh, had the narrator, Leroy, um, who is not actually a reference to uh, war the world of Warcraft, Leroy, even though that is very, very common. Uh, mostly, I took <laughs> that name because uh, it means the king or like the royal and uh he goes by the moniker like leroy the king so it, it's someone who doesn't know that he's calling himself the king the king um <laughs> and uh and he says something like you know here in the city we don't put no stock in dead people um and the character voice isn't the character voice of mark twain but the line is mark twain and i hope that people kind of recognize uh, recognize that influence because I had read um, Huckleberry Finn um, not shortly before, but before writing that story, and it and and part of that I you know uh, part of his voice did come through a little bit there, um, but yeah, I, I don't know if that counts. That one line stolen no, from Huck yeah, no, that's excellent. I think stuff like that. Uh, I think they call that illusions in a professional like big brain writing circles <laughs> it, well, it's a little it's underneath an illusion like um typically an illusion i have to actually mention what it is like if you read paradise lost like there's mm -hmm. an illusion every couple freaking lines it's like a biblical illusion or a, a, a mythological illusion where by name one of the uh like a, a biblical landmark or a mythological figure or story will get directly referenced in the form of either a metaphor or a simile so uh, it's not quite an illusion, but yeah, I guess that counts as, as paying homage for anyone who happens to catch that. All right. Well, um, we we're at the end of our hour, Nate. This was, a, I think, a, quite a productive conversation. Um, we now know that novel novels are not novel, uh, that originality is not the name of the game. We want to be inspired. Um, we don't want to be incestuously derivative, and so in order to avoid that, we must Frankenstein our works from the broadest possible range that we can manage. Um, and then it's also good to pay homage when you can to the works that inspired you. Um, did I miss anything there? No, that sounds excellent. Right. Read a lot now, of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, stuff that you don't like, too. I think because 
one, you'll find that you might like it after you've made yourself read it. Two, maybe you suck. As uh, this is kind of controversial, it'll go with my last topic on the list, uh, which I'm not going to go through the list again. But it was about readers being wrong. Sometimes you suck as a reader, and that's why you don't <laughs> enjoy what you're reading. And I'm not kidding. Um, when I very very first started reading Lovecraft, my reading ability was really really bad, and I had a hard time getting through his long sentences, and it made it a little bit just uh, unpleasurable. Uh, but I had a uh, Essentially, uh, my Kung Fu teacher growing up was more like Pai Mei and less like the kind and gentle like Buddhist monk. And so I just forced myself to do it until I could do it well. And then I enjoyed it like a lot more. So read a wide range, read things that are hard to read. Because if you don't, then you're going to end up producing a book that's the equivalent of having a baby with your sister. And that's gross. Don't do that. All right. Is <laughs> that like advice? Yeah. So let's to chill at the end. If you made it this far, thank you so much. Um, you can keep up with me by going to my website, wildislelit.com. I've got all the podcasts hosted there as well as on YouTube. And eventually I'll put them up somewhere else when I have the time. And I, I'm not stressed in day in, day out trying to keep up on my work schedule. Um, also, there on my website, you can uh, see my published works. Right now, I've got out Wand Smoke, Broken, which we've talked quite a bit about today, and my editing service, the Wild Isle Style Guide. If you want to be, uh, let's say, if you want your manuscript to be just as inspired with a wide range of styles, like all the different types of works we talked about here today on our podcast, go check that out. Hire me as your editor, and I will help you help yourself, particularly the Wild Isle Discipleship, where I will provide you a reading list and uh, study guide, which is essentially what I learned going through grad school. So instead of you paying $100,000 to be in debt to learn what I learned, you could pay much less than that and have a lot more fun doing it. Uh, and if you want to be uh, on this podcast, try to get in contact with me. You can do that at my wife's website as well, wildeyelit.com slash contact or through any of the social media that you can find me on. I think I'm on uh, I'm on all the mainstream ones uh, and a few of the alternatives, uh, particularly minds.com. Um, and thank you again, Nate, for joining me today. This was uh, a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you did as well. Absolutely. All right. Well, for all of you listening, uh, I'm sure Nate will be back on eventually. Uh, but until then, we'll see you next time.